Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. good to hear the offertory end on that great uh, Easter hymn because uh, it seems like with one big flourish of activity Easter kind of came and went that quick it seems like that but that's not really the case according to the traditional church calendar this is simply the second Sunday of Easter the second of seven Sundays of Easter. Indeed, the fact that we meet on Sunday morning, not on the Sabbath morning, uh, bears testimony to the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead every Sunday is a little Easter. So rather than just go about our business as if nothing has happened, I want this morning for us to savor the season a bit, to reflect again on the significance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's what the Apostle Peter was doing as he penned the words that we're going to look at this morning. Some 30 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead, he's still savoring the significance of that reality. Well, let me read it. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This passage is a great doxology. It's a great uh, outburst of thanksgiving and praise for all that God has done. And I think it has three wonderful things to teach us. The first is this. Jesus rose to bring us great salvation. Jesus rose to bring us great salvation. Did you ever have one of those death by chocolate kind of desserts, you know, that's so sweet, so rich, you can't quite ever get it all down? Um, This passage is kind of like that. It's just too rich to comprehend. Even as I read through it again, I go, 
This is too much, too much. William Barclay says, there are few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas and conceptions come together. Jesus rose to bring us this great salvation. And several facets of that great salvation are mentioned here. So let me go through a few. First, Jesus rose to give us new birth. And we've heard of the new birth before from other passages. Being born again is God giving us new life. It's the defining difference between true Christians and religious people. It's different from our physical birth. It, it is a spiritual birth, the Spirit of God creating in us something new, making us part of a new creation. It's not something we do. We can't born ourselves. It's the work of the Spirit of God. It's mysterious. God does it by his word, by his spirit. It's rebirth under righteousness and love. So we've heard about the new birth before. Now to that list, Peter adds some more things. It's a rebirth into hope and an inheritance that we're going to talk about in just a minute. And it's all possible by not just the death, but the raising to new life of Jesus. Now for Peter, life in Jesus was undoubtedly a powerful emotional reality. Remember, Peter watched Jesus die. All his hope was gone. He was hiding out for his life. And then God raised him from the dead, and Peter saw Jesus alive again. So he must certainly have felt newborn by his experience of Jesus' resurrection. But that experience is not what Peter's talking about here. For the people he's writing to, and, and you and I, we've never seen Jesus. We didn't see him alive on this earth. We didn't see him dead. We didn't see him raised again. But by his resurrection power, through the work of the Holy Spirit, using the word of God, the gospel, we too, these readers too, have been given new life, reborn in Christ. Folks, this is the most basic definition of the Christian life. As Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has brought us great salvation, nothing less than a new life. But that's only the beginning. Next we read that Jesus rose to give us a living hope, an inheritance that can never fade or spoil or perish. Now the word hope and the words hope and inheritance uh, are used a bit differently here than we're used to. When use, we use the word hope, there's a great deal of uncertainty to say, well, I hope so. Is, is far short of being certain of anything, isn't it? And, and inheritance has a similar uncertainty. We may say, well, I hope my grandfather leaves me an inheritance. That certainly is not certainty. But when the Bible speaks of these things, it speaks with certainty. Biblical hope is more like our word expectation. It's a recognition that we, are, that we don't have it in our hand. We wait, but we wait with a certain expectation. We know it's ours. And, in, and the same thing with inheritance. Our inheritance is a sure possession, though it's not in our hand yet. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can expect, we have certain hope for a sure inheritance. Now, in the Old Testament, inheritance, as we read in Deuteronomy 8 this morning, inheritance was used to describe the land of Canaan, where the, the, the Jewish people were going in to possess their own land, a wonderful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. But according to verse 4, our inheritance in Jesus 
is even better than that. It's imperishable. Now the inheritance of the land of Canaan did perish. The people eventually were sent into exile. But our inheritance of Christ is better for it will never perish. It's also undefilable, can't be spoiled, can't be defiled, can't be polluted. The Old Testament law, the law of Moses, uh, for, uh, forbade many things that if you did this, it would defile the land. But our inheritance in Christ cannot be defiled. It's unfading, it says here. It doesn't wear away. Even the most beautiful things of the land of Canaan uh, would fade and die. But what Christ gives us never fades, never dies, never wears out. You see this wonderful a certain inheritance and this certain hope is nothing less than heaven itself a new heaven a new earth the, the kingdom of righteousness and peace eternal life with God and, and biggest of all it, it's the inheritance of God himself by his grace in Christ we become heirs we become children of God in Psalm 73 the psalm writer uh, uh, anticipates this. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. In Lamentation 3, Jeremiah says the same thing. I say to myself, The Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. Oh, what great inheritance is ours in the risen Christ. Finally, our text says Jesus rose to guarantee this great salvation, this new birth, this great inheritance, this certain hope. Here we are assured that God preserves this great salvation for us. According to verses 4 and 5, he keeps our inheritance. It's reserved for us in heaven when we get there. It has been readied. It's all set to be revealed when the time is perfect. Remember what Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come and receive you, that where I am there you may be also. But it will not be revealed until the last day, the day when he comes to judge the wicked and to deliver his people. But no matter what happens here, God has not forgotten. He has our eternal inheritance ready and waiting, reserved for us at the proper time. But that's not all he preserves. According to verse 5, he's also busy keeping us. Peter uses a military word, shielded, to describe God's care for his reborn children. It means kept under guard. We, we, we might call it protective custody. We're surrounded by God's mighty power to protect us until the last day. Well, it's not something we can do. We only trust God for his protection. An attitude of self-preservation is the last thing we need. We look to him, for he preserves us. Jesus rose to bring us such a great salvation. It's unlike any religion of the world, folks. This is not a plan by which we will win God's favor. This is nothing less than a new birth that God gives us. An eternal inheritance that God passes on to us in Christ. And a certainty about it all that is guaranteed by the Lord himself. Such is the salvation Jesus wrought by his death and resurrection from the dead.
And that ought to sing, set our hearts to singing. That ought to make us rejoice. And sure enough, that's exactly what it does. And we see in our second point here. Because Jesus lives, we can rejoice. Because Jesus lives, we can rejoice. Even in suffering. Because Jesus lives, we can rejoice even in suffering. So far, you may have thought I'm discussing some pie-in-the-sky-by-and-by kind of utopian uh, religion, which doesn't square with the real world. Well, all that changes in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. One author I read called verse 6, that jolt. That jolt. It's not a jolt that we might rejoice in God's great salvation. How could we do otherwise? The jolt is that immediately after the promise of a new life, of an inheritance kept for us, of God's shielding power from now till then, the jolt is this statement. Though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer. Make no mistake, that's always been a difficult paradox for the people of God. If God is keeping us, how can we have to endure trials? Where's his care? Where's his mercy? Where's his power? Where's his wisdom? How could I have to go through this? And so though Job's friends, the Old Testament, were great theologians, they stumbled here. They could not understand how God's plan might include suffering. And though David was a man after God's own heart, he said, I almost stumbled here when I saw the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And it continues to be a stumbling block for us. Why, Lord? Why? We struggle with the grief which we sometimes encounter. We, we struggle with the irritations of life. We struggle with the injustice in, in, in the world. We, trials of all kinds make us say, why, God? Why? How can we rejoice in the middle of this suffering? Well, verse 7 throws some light on this dilemma. Let me read it again. These have come, that is, these trials, have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Here Peter draws an analogy between our faith and the refining of gold. Gold, though it is of great value, the, the, the most precious metal, is intentionally exposed to intense heat. But the goal is not to destroy the gold. The goal is to destroy everything but the gold. Thus, the refining process proves the value of the gold and indeed even enhances the value of the gold by removing the dross. In the same way, Peter says, trials refine our faith. They both prove the genuineness of our faith and they strengthen our faith, removing its inconsistencies and making it more valuable. 
You see, this salvation which Jesus brought is greater than we might ever have imagined. We can understand a salvation that delivers us from trouble, and then we live a charmed life while everybody else is struggling. A lot of Christians talk as if that's what the Christian life is, but it's not. We can understand a salvation of which we will have someday, although today is the pits, yet somewhere, someday, there's something worth doing. We can understand that. What we cannot possibly know outside of Christ is this great salvation that we actually possess. Though we don't see him yet, we already know him. We're already born of him. We're already children of God, already heirs of him. In our trials, he may often seem far off, but because he's alive, we can believe and we can rejoice and we can know that even the trials serve his purposes. And even in the midst of the pain and the grief of our trouble, we live in fellowship with God and know inexpressible, glorious joy. This is the consistent teaching of, Christ, of, of, of the scriptures concerning the Christian life. We can rejoice even in suffering. We read in Romans 5, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. We read it again in James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you fall into various kinds of trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Dear people, this resurrection joy is something much more than the world calls joy. There's something mysterious about this joy, for it exists side by side with sorrow. Paul talks about being sorrowful and always rejoicing. How can that be? The women at the tomb were afraid and filled with joy at the same time. How can that be? It's mysterious. Peter says this joy is not only glorious, it's inexpressible. It's not just a good laugh and a good joke. It's joy that goes deep and finds difficulty knowing how to express itself, sometimes in the middle of grief. This is a joy which God works in the reborn soul. It's a joy that controls our responses to trial and our responses to blessing. It's a joy that is sometimes indistinguishable from the other fruits of the Spirit, the love and peace and long-suffering and kindness and self-control. Bishop J.C. Ryle, a hundred years ago, made a wonderful observation about this Christian joy. Let me read you what he said. He suggests that it's uh, rooted in the Christian's ability to face reality. Here's what he says. The true Christian is the only happy man because he can sit down quietly and think about his soul. He can look behind him. Think of how unhinged so many people are because of their past. He can think calmly of things to come and yet not be afraid. Sickness is painful. Death is solemn. The judgment day is an awful thing. But having Christ for him, he has nothing to fear. He can think calmly about the holy God who's Eyes are on all his ways and feel, he is my father. I am weak. I am unprofitable. 
Yet in Christ, he regards me as his dear child and is well pleased. Bishop Ryle sums up, oh, what a privilege it is to be able to think and not be afraid. To think and not be afraid. Well, more recently, the Gaithers put it into a popular song. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. We can and must rejoice, even in our suffering. For Jesus rose from the dead. And according to verse 9, our blessings and our trials are all part of being saved right now and forever. One more truth about the significance of Christ's resurrection. All history has waited for Jesus. All history has waited for Jesus. Look again at verses 10 to 12. Let me read it again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Most everyone at some point has difficulty figuring out quite what to do with the Old Testament scriptures, especially the prophets are difficult. They're mysterious. What are they doing? What did they see themselves doing? What are we to think about what they were doing? Does what they say actually have anything directly to do to us, or is it just kind of nice to know history? Well, this text doesn't answer in detail, but it does give us some clear direction. The prophets were pointing us to Jesus. For all history has waited for him. Now, this does not mean that the prophets had no conscious role, that God kind of just stuck words in their mouths and they didn't have a clue what they were saying. That's not true. Verse 10 specifically says, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to understand this salvation that they were preaching about. But verse 11 says they did not understand. Oh, they understood a little, but they did not understand all that the Spirit was prophesying through them. They wished they knew the time and the situation, the circumstances of of the fulfillment, but they didn't understand. And verse 12 says they eventually understood they were talking about things beyond them, things that only we are in a position to comprehend. This much is always clear. The prophets were pointing us to Jesus. Now, simple as this may be, not everyone agrees with that statement. Actually, there are many who would deny it quite forcefully. The objection goes, you can't pour the New Testament back into the Old Testament. You have to take the Old Testament for what it is in itself. You can't Christianize it. And so on the theological left, some would say, what we have in the Old Testament is simply 
a record of uh, human religious experience. Perhaps you'll benefit from it as you read it. Perhaps you might have some experience of God yourself, but ultimately it's not directed to you. It's not speaking to you. It's a result of record of somebody else's experience. Oh, but this passage says quite clearly, the prophets meant to point us to Christ, for all history was waiting for him. And then on the theological right, you have the same argument, only different. In the name of literal interpretation, some would demand that the message of the Old Testament prophets must be limited to what the prophets understood it meant at the time. These dear brothers who believe this would say, we can't go back and reinterpret prophecy in light of Jesus' coming. We must expect the fulfillment that the prophets expected. And what that boils down to is that we must expect prophecies of the rebirth of Israel, not the rebirth of the church. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke struggled through this in his theological journey. He wrote a very interesting article years ago called, Is It Right to Read the New Testament into the Old? Let me, let me read you just a couple of lines. He says, I want to defend the church's traditional view that the New Testament has priority in unpacking the meaning of the Old Testament. The whole of Scripture interprets the parts of Scripture. The Christian doctrine of the plenary inspiration of Scriptures demands that we allow the divine author to tell us at a later time precisely what he meant in his earlier statements. And verse 11 seems to agree. It was the Spirit of Christ in the prophets who pointed them to the work of Jesus. That's how the apostles understood it. All history was waiting for Jesus. Now folks, there are huge implications of this truth. If the Spirit of God, through the ancient prophets, meant to point us to Jesus, that means there's a meaning in history. All kinds of people these days don't believe that. Everything is thought to be simply chance plus time. Therefore, people live lives for the moment. What matters is what's in it for me right this minute. My comfort, my wealth, my pleasure. And frankly, Christians get into the same thing. We kind of Christianize that mentality that all, matter, all that matters to us is uh, about our belief of God is uh, can he bless me and can he make me more prosperous and can he make me feel better and can he heal my hurts and can he make me more fulfilled right now. But again, if the spirit of Christ through the ancient prophets is pointing us to Jesus, there's a meaning to all of this. It's headed somewhere. It proceeds from God. And it's headed toward his intended goal in Christ. But Peter goes even further than that. He says the prophets were pointing specifically to the suffering of Jesus and the glory that would follow. Folks, that's the gospel. That Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to, the, to, to, into glory at the Father's right hand. Now see, many people are willing to talk about Jesus. If you talk of Jesus as the great altruistic uh, philanthropist, or, or if you talk of Jesus as the noble teacher, if you talk about Jesus as the countercultural rebel, or talk of Jesus as the therapist. But you start talking about the cross and Jesus dying for sins and actually rising from the dead, people start backing off with some kind of weird person. But here the Spirit says the suffering of Jesus and the glory that would follow 
is the whole point of history. All history waited for the suffering Messiah who then in glory would reign forever. That's what the prophets predicted. I just want to tell you that because Jesus rose from the dead, our whole worldview must change. There's no division between sacred and secular. It all belongs to Christ. This mindless pursuit of the world's agenda and the world's wealth and power, it leads us nowhere. For because Jesus is risen, all history has become his story. He's the point of it all. He's the king of kings and the Lord of all lords. Jesus, for whom all history is waited, has risen from the dead. So we've gone a little over the top here. <laughs> Acting as if Easter has changed things forever. Sometimes if you've kind of overstated your case, it's good to kind of end up by making a softer, um, mitigating kind of statement. Well, it's interesting to see what Peter does. He doesn't do that. After speaking of the greatness of this salvation, the absolute centrality of Christ, look at how he finishes at the end of verse 12. Even angels long to look into these things. This statement only shows the gospel is more radical than than we ever dreamed. Think about it. The angels personally know the holiness of God. We read in Isaiah 6 that the angels surround the throne of God, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with this glory. So the angels would long to know, how can the Holy One bring such great salvation to sinful human creatures? Oh, Holy God, how can you do this? Angels long to understand. Not only that, the angels, think about it, the angels knew the Son. Christ the Son, for all eternity past since the angels were created. They've seen him in his glory. They've seen him share the glory of the Father. And now the angels must be dumbfounded. How could the glorious eternal Son be humiliated on the earth like one of his creatures and suffer and die to save sinners who don't even care? And the angels... Oh, oh, I don't understand. They long to understand. Indeed, as the angels have seen to what great lengths God is willing to go to save us, perhaps the angels long to know how we could hear it and take it all so lightly and be unaffected. This great salvation is beyond our comprehension. The angels know it. They long to look into these things accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, 
Some of us have heard the gospel for so long that we've become inoculated. We can hear the words and never be moved. We're just immune to it. It doesn't even register in the real world in which we live. No matter how much you say that this is a whole point of history, it just doesn't even register. So, Lord, I ask that you might break through that coldness, break through that calloused heart that we tend to develop sitting in church week after week and cause us, Lord, to see the glory of the gospel, this great salvation that that you've given to us that enables us even to rejoice in you in the midst of suffering and even dying, to understand where history is headed. We get so fearful and fretful about stuff that goes on in the world and about the politics of the day and the economic crisis. Oh, Father, help us to see that history is not out of control. That the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings sits on the throne and history is headed toward its certain destiny in him. Give us faith to believe. Things that we may have heard many times and yet fail to grasp. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.